0: Well, good morning, Restore. Uh, My name's Justin. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, And if you are just now joining us, we're in the middle of a new series, which personally I'm very excited about um, for a couple of reasons. One, it's really this. Uh, I think one of the most underdeveloped, undertaught, underemphasized Christian actions, like part of why we do church, is unity. Right, right, so most of us have heard many, many sermons on, on, on glorifying God, on, on combating sin, on worship, right? And these are all beautiful and wonderful things and part of why we celebrate and live as a church together. But very few of us, I believe, have ever actually heard a sermon on unity, much less thought of it as like a principal part of our goal as Christians. Like one of the things that we exercise and live out together as believers is Unity in love. And so what we're going to be doing over this next series, over these next couple of weeks, is we're going to be exploring uh, Christian unity. We're going to be doing this by exploring what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so so what do I mean by that? Um, When we can define what it means to be a faithful, loving, follower of Jesus we now know how to stay united in our love for one another. When we can define what this is, what it means to follow Christ, to glorify Christ, to worship Christ, to love Jesus, when we understand what this means, we can actually begin to, together, understand what it means to be Christians. Most of us are used to a Christianity that has been inundated and saturated with Cultural influence, right, with political influence. Uh, All kinds of versions of Christianity exist, but if we're really going to be faithful followers of Jesus who love him in unity, we must first understand what it is that we claim to live and worship out together. And so, what we're going to be doing this series is we're exploring something called the Nicene Creed. Okay, so the Nicene Creed was an early church document. Uh, that was ratified in the first 500 years of the church. And it was the first time, uh, and really the only time, that the church, north and south, east and west, had come together and affirmed what we believe as Christians. And it is now the the only church document in existence that is affirmed by both Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. It is the thing that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have in common with every other follower of Jesus. There are many, many nuances to the faith, right? There are many, many cultural differences with the way people worship Jesus all over the world. Even in our country, there are different ways that we worship Jesus and come together as Christians. But the Nicene Creed stands as a way that we define Christian hope kind of across the board. Okay, so why, why unity is so important is Jesus actually says in his priestly prayer, when he prays to the Father before the crucifixion for us, they let them be one. This is part of Jesus' actual heart and plea for us as his followers. Uh, St. Ignatius, who was one of the early church fathers, uh, he said this, in your harmonious and symphonic love, Jesus Christ is sung. So person by person become a choir that being symphonic in harmony and taking up the tune of god in unison you may with one voice sing through jesus christ to the father so that he may both hear you and know by your by the good you practice that you are indeed members of his son it is advantageous therefore that you should live in blameless unity, that you must always enjoy communion with God. Okay, so, so as we explore the Nicene Creed, what we're going to do is we're going to draw heavily from Scripture, which is exactly what they did when they formed the Nicene Creed. Uh, and so for this first part of the Nicene Creed, we're going to be exploring God the Father. Okay, so the Creed starts with this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible. Okay, maker of all things, visible and invisible. So, why this is important, right? So, if I were to ask you, like, who is God the Father? You're like, ah, was he Jesus' dad? Like, I kind of get a little bit of maybe how that works, But what the creed does here is it actually lays out two very fundamental aspects of knowing God, of worshiping God, of following God, and I will argue this morning, trusting God. And it's these two things. These are these two things that I want us to take away uh, from the sermon this morning. The first is this because God is visible to us as creator, as creator of the world, as a good God, we can know that he is fundamentally, fundamentally committed to our good. That's truth number one, which then helps us with truth number two, which means that on all the ways that he works that are invisible to us, that are unseen by us, that we struggle to understand, we can trust him because we understand truth number one. Because we understand God first as creator who creates a good world for our good, fundamentally committed to our good, We can trust, number two, that as God works through ways that are invisible and unseen to us, unknown to us, unfathomable to us, we can trust that he is committed to our good. And I believe that if we can hold these two in tension with each other throughout our spiritual life, whether we find ourselves in mountains or we find ourselves in valleys, whether we find ourselves in seasons of clarity or whether we find ourselves in seasons of disorientation and darkness, holding these two together in tension will allow us to faithfully follow Jesus in all seasons of our lives. So this is very similar to how Paul uh, finishes the doxology in Romans 11. and This is the text that we'll be in this morning. And like I said, most of what the Nicene Creed is, is they, they pulled truths out of Scripture and then formalized them into this document. Here's a piece of Scripture that really reflects what they're trying to say here, I believe. Romans 11, through 36, Paul says this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning as we jump into the text. Well, Father God, for these next few minutes, um, as we, I don't know, as we explore you, (laughs) like really, like as we get to know you, your character and your love, your mercy and your goodness, Father, would you help us to glorify you, as Paul says here, as we learn more about your attributes and your character and your nature. Help us to submit our life to you, to faithfully worship you, and to love you as our creator and our good God, to trust you in all things both visible and invisible to us. Father, we need you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So uh, as we jump in the text this morning, uh, a couple of things that Paul does here in the doxology. Uh, First thing he does is he shows that God is the creator and the giver of life and is committed to our good. This means that in verse 35, when Paul says this, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Here's what Paul is saying fundamentally. All that God offers you, the grace that he bestows upon you, the love and the mercy that he shows you, everything that he is, he gives in such a way that you cannot repay this. There's nothing that you owe God, well, let me rephrase it. There's nothing that you can give God back to where God's like, well, I'm glad I roped him in, right? I'm glad she's on my team. Like, that was a good call, right? Like, I'm glad first round draft pick we got this person, right? Now, fundamentally, here, here's here's where this actually requires us to really wrestle with grace. Okay, so on paper, I think we know this. I can't give anything to God that, like, benefits him because he is the source of all goodness. He's the source of... Everything that is good comes from him. Therefore, there's nothing that I can actually do to offer up to God in such a way that he's like, thanks, I don't know what I would have done without you. But I want to argue here for a second that most of us do not live our life this way. We fundamentally live our life in such a way that we still see the relationship with God as sort of like a tit-for-tat or karma, right? I pour in a little bit here, he gives a little bit back. I'm good here. He's good to me. I'm bad here. He punishes me. This is fundamentally how we start to understand grace, and it is very, very different than, I think, understanding grace is the way that Paul radically wants us to understand grace. There is nothing that you can do to repay God for any of the goodness that he shows you, so stop trying, this is actually literally what Gaul says in Galatians uh, 2, verse 21. He actually says that we nullify the grace of God when we attempt to earn it. When we attempt to like, find favor with God or prove to God that he was right in showing us goodness, we end up actually nullifying the goodness. We end up actually canceling out the goodness that he shows us. Because we've subtly tried to find a way to earn it. We've subtly tried to find a way to entitle ourselves to it hey, I've stopped saying enough bad words and I've stopped watching enough R-rated movies and I've started making enough good I don't know, like, maybe you guys love R-rated movies. I don't know. Like, but that's not my point. The point is like, every single one of us has a moral arbitrary standard, I promise you. Every single person in this room has a standard that you think if I go below this, I'm disapproved by God. If I stay above this, he approves me. I don't know what your standard is. Um, as someone who struggles with OCD and scrupulosity, Like, mine is all over the place all of the time. Like, I've got all kinds of things. I'm like, if I fall below this, I'm just, like, God has disapproved of me. This is fundamentally why we often wrestle with shame, by the way, right? When we do feel like we've violated our own moral standard or we feel like we've violated God's standard, part of what our shame does is we hold on to this trying to demonstrate or prove to God, I'm really sorry I've done this. Will you forgive me? Will you see how remorseful I am? Now, there's something beautiful about repentance. I'm not negating that. I think there's something beautiful about saying, being able to say, God, I'm incredibly selfish, and I need you, and I'm sinful, and I, like, I cannot navigate this on my own. However, I do think there's a big difference between repentance and shame. And I think many of us have actually merged the two. And we've become convinced that shame is an aspect of repentance, and Paul says in Galatians, and I think he's saying here in the doxology, this is not part of repentance. You actually end up nullifying the grace that's being offered to you freely. This is difficult for us because every relationship in our life, and I remember I actually had to work this out in therapy. I don't know, maybe that's too much information for you guys, but I, like I was working out, in th- like every relationship of our life is reciprocal. Even our most intimate, loving, connected ones, like marriage. There's still some part of, like, I put in and get out, and I receive, right? Like, this is just how humans work. And it took me a long time to actually accept this, and then to realize that our relationship with God operates on a very different scale. Who is it that God could be repaid? How many of us, like, with the goodness that God has shown, we can then go to God and say, well, I've tried really hard, and I've been really moral, and I've given lots of money, right, have done lots of Christian things. Most of us, though, fundamentally want to live our life this way. And what Paul is saying is here is this relationship with God is not reciprocal. It's very one way. Okay, so this doesn't negate our responsibility to worship God, glorify him, serve him faithfully. That's not what I'm saying, but I want to start here at the very beginning, as Paul is saying, God's goodness that he bestows upon us is fundamentally one way, it operates and is dependent on and necessitated by entirely his character and his goodness towards us. And there is nothing you can do to change that. So here's here's the fundamental. So here's the fundamental problem with this that most of us actually wrestle with is that none of us actually receive God's goodness well. We either receive it with an entitled sense of God, you owed me this, or we receive it with a guilty sense of I don't deserve this, and like, and there's this kind of like shamefulness to it, but rather what Paul, I think, actually inviting us to with the radical nature of grace is is to actually be able to receive his goodness without both a sense of entitlement or a sense of shame. Without a sense of God, I, you owe me this because of how hard I work or how good I am, or without a sense of like I don't deserve it so I can't accept it. It's true that we don't deserve it, but what I mean by that is we often say because I don't deserve it, I can't accept this like I've got to like I've got to start measuring up a little bit more here. And this is rad- radically and fundamentally different than the nature of grace here. So creation itself is an act of grace. When you read Genesis, Genesis is written very differently Uh, than any other ancient text on creation. It's written with an extraordinary amount of detail. And what we see is this God who lovingly and gently and carefully and gracefully and mercifully places man in this garden, man and woman in this garden, humanity in this garden. And it tells the story of the goodness of God bestowed upon humanity. So this is difficult for us, right, because fundamentally we are not convinced that God, I don't think we are fundamentally convinced that God is actually committed to our good in this way. I think we are still remain convinced that if I am good enough, God remains convinced, committed to my good. And if I'm bad enough, then he may pull back a little bit, or he may withdraw a little bit. The story of Genesis is this carefully constructed story in which Adam and Eve through no effort of their own, through no intent of their own, through no offering of their own are placed in paradise and offered by their good father to go and flourish and thrive. At his core, God's intent and will for you is your good. Okay, and this is not me being like a liberal like Kumbaya pastor like I don't like, like, I'm not, a, like, I don't like any political label, right? But, like, this isn't me saying, uh, like, yes, like, sometimes you're like, well, what about God's judgment? Like, we'll talk about those things too, right? And we have been talking about those. We talked about them a lot last December. But I want to get out here fundamentally at his core at the very beginning of creation, the first two chapters of Genesis certainly portray a God who is committed to the good and the flourishing of you and me and who offers it to us willingly without any effort on our part, other than to just receive it openly, without guilt, without shame, without remorse, and without entitlement. This is the nature of God's goodness. So, why we spend a little bit of time on that is the second part here, um, which is the part that I think we actually also struggle with a little bit more, and it's the invisible, the incomparable, incomprehensible unfathomable nature of god okay so uh paul says oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of god how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor okay so truth number one is god as we see his creator evidence by the way that he's created goodness all around us right The way our children laugh at us, the way that we have close connected friendships, right? The way that we can taste good food, like all of these are indications that God, at His core, is good. They're hints, right? They're visible means of invisible grace. They're visible, tangible evidence of an invisible goodness towards God, of God towards us. But this is why the second truth is a lot harder for us, and it's this: is that God often works in invisible ways. So so we are glued in on, uh, I see God working, if I can see God working, I know He's working. If I have evidence of His goodness, I know He cares. But the reality is, much of how God works, this is a big part of His character, is His goodness is manifested both in ways that are seen, but in ways that are also unseen. And I think we love to focus, we can really, it's easy for us to understand the first piece. It's a lot, we will spend our entire lives and our faith working out the second. But the goodness of God, the way that he works in our lives, his, his, the ways that his grace is uplifting us, upholding us, shaping us, forgiving us, redeeming us, restoring us, making us new, will remain fundamentally invisible to us. But that means, it does not mean that it remains any less powerful or any less beautiful. And what it doesn't mean is that we, have any, we can derive any less hope from that. In fact, I want to argue that we actually derive more hope from that. And what I said, uh, I think, in the email today, and I know it was a little uh, counterintuitive, but I, I actually think that it's because we cannot understand God's goodness is actually a reason for us to be able to trust it. Because we cannot see it, this is actually a reason for us to find hope in it. This is what I mean. Every single one of us here is sinful, is selfish, is tired, is weary, is stressed, is burnt out, is feeling uh, insecure about something. All of this clouds the way that we view and discern life. It clouds the way that we view and discern ourselves. Every single one of us is broken enough, weary enough, tired enough, sinful enough, insecure enough that we, have a, we would have difficulty actually recognizing God's goodness as he shows it to us. Right? As a former counselor, uh, I remember, there's I mean, so many situations I can think of where if someone grows up in a hurtful or an abusive home. One of the things that's difficult for them, and I know for some of you this is your story, is as they grow older, it's harder for them to recognize love like their, their view of love becomes twisted because they've seen it. They've seen abuse or they've seen neglect. And it's difficult for them when they're actually being loved, when they're actually being respected, when they're actually being seen, it's sometimes difficult for them to receive that because they don't know how to do it. They've never done it before. This is fundamentally uh, how I would describe the way that God's love actually works for us. None of us actually have a real sense of what pure love from God looks like because none of us have been loved perfectly before. We may have had parents that were close. We may have friends that are close. Hopefully we have a church that strives to be close. But at our core, every single one of us has never recognized the goodness of God as, it is pu- as its purity. It's purity as its true goodness, as its true love is expressed towards us. We can't. We're too small. We're too finite. We're not wise enough. John uses the analogy of like we're all walking in the dark and God is the light. But Here's the thing. When you, when you are uh, walking into a dark room and a light suddenly turns on, it takes a little bit of time for your eyes to get adjusted. I think this is very similar to how the love of God works in our life. When the God of light steps into our darkness and shows us his unconditional, unwavering, radical love and grace and mercy for us, it takes time for our eyes to get adjusted to that. It takes time for our hearts to posture to be able to receive it well. This is why it's so important for us to understand Uh, that God works in invisible ways, not just visible ways. Most of us, like our faith is often dependent on the visible things that we think and see God doing. This is also true, uh, right? So this is something I I hear even sometimes in worship songs of like, I haven't seen it yet, but I know you're coming, right? Like I know the victory's on the way. And implicit within that, there is some truth to that. I'm not gonna validate all of that, but implicit within that, There's also this understanding of, I can't see it, but I will, right? The next five to 10 years, I might, maybe 20. But here's the thing. I think there are actually ways in which you will not see the goodness of God as it works out in your life, during your life. I think at some point you will go face to face with God and all things will be revealed and you will get to see some of this. But I do think part of the way that our faith grows Part of the way that we learn to faithfully worship jesus all through our life is recognizing that some of the ways that he is tying our good together in our life are not going to be visible to us ever that's part of what paul says here there's there's ways that god has that are unsearchable you will never be his counsel there's never a part where you're like gonna get caught up to speed and be like well god that was a pretty good call but here's a couple of ways we could improve it for the next time around right like there's never going to be a point in which you get to consult god and he's not saying that so like, so shame on you little small-minded, weak-minded people, like grovel in your insignificance. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is trust. Trust that God's goodness is going to work in ways that you will never fully understand and never fully see. This is, I believe, the secret to actually trusting God. Right, going back to truth number one, because God is creator and understanding him as creator fundamentally committed to our good. This helps us with truth number two. This helps us in the disoriented times of our life where nothing in our life seems to go exactly the way that we intended it to. This is the second truth of this helps us stay oriented in the midst of suffering. Right? In the midst of doubt, even. Right? And questioning God's character or who he is. When we can commit our hearts to truth number one, it allows us to stay oriented for truth number two, which is much of God's goodness, much of the way that he works, much of the way that he upholds and is shaping you and changing you and redeeming you and restoring you will remain entirely and completely invisible to you. The promise isn't so you'll see it all one day, necessarily. The promise is even when you can't see it, you can trust it. That's the actual promise, and yes, I do believe that face to face with Jesus someday you're gonna—he's going to—in his goodness show you all the intricacies of the way that he worked your life out for your good, so that you could know him. I do believe that, but I also believe that for many of us, um, our, our faith can end up get sh- end up getting shipwrecked over this second point, right? When we really hit suffering. When it really hits us in a way that you know, we can't sleep at night or it hurts. When our life takes turns that feel so disorienting, the question we ask is, where are you, God? What We have to remember is part of God's attributes, part of who he is, his character and his nature will remain entirely unseen to us. And this is faith. This is, this is what the journey of faith is. Uh, this is being able to worship uh, him fully throughout your life. able to say god i can't see but i also realize the part of the way your goodness is manifested towards me will remain unseen right many of us um, when we pray in these in these moments uh, we demand to see god right that's kind of that's that's a big part of how god where are you right now that's a huge question that we ask when we're suffering and it's not a wrong question if you're asking that question right now continue to ask it continue to plead like cry out, God, where are you? But what this truth here in Romans tells us, this part of the nature of God's character tells us, is when we can't see where he is, we can trust that he's right next to us, that he's near us, that he's got us, that he's committed to our good. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, and sorry, A.V.T., and I know I'm jumping ahead just a couple of verses there, but Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he describes this reality this way. He says, now that we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity, the moment in which we meet Jesus is what he's talking about here. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Right, Paul's getting at here is is part of part of the, the experience of knowing God and worshiping God and faithfully serving God and loving God remains means remaining committed to the ways at which He works that are invisible to us. But beginning to see this not as something that alarms us, but as something that actually anchors us. This is, this is the true Christian hope, I think, here, with worship, with glorifying God. It's recognizing that the invisible attributes of God, the invisible ways that he works, are as much a part of who he is as the tangible, visible ways, too. And when we can learn to hold these two together in tension, I believe we can actually more faithfully and wholly and completely worship God. I also think it releases us it releases us from holding God to the expectation that you answer my life and work it out in exactly the way that I demand that you do. Which, in the end, frees us. This is freeing. Uh, as, as we close, I, I want to I leave us with this. Um, the goal of all of this Right? Understanding God and who he is 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 part of what the goal in all of this is freedom. Right? It's this freedom to be able to worship him without restraint, to be able to receive his grace without restraint, right? Without entitlement, without guilt, or without remorse, or without shame. This is freedom. This is what understanding the character of God is all about here. Right? So, um, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it's no analogy is entirely perfect. Um, but somebody asked me one time, "Hey, you know, um, understanding, like, how do you get along with people that are difficult?" Was really the question. Um, it's very similar to a conversation we actually had this morning. I'm like, I don't. I'm a pastor. I don't know anything about that. Like, <laughs> come on. Um, I'm kidding. Um, I actually think part of the secret to like getting along with people that are difficult. In your life like family like this comes up every christmas like as a pastor too like all you guys are like i gotta see my family i don't know what to do like help me part of actually i think finding freedom to be able to love your family in the difficult moments be able to love difficult people is acceptance it's to be able to actually let go of the expectations They act in a certain way. Now, I'm not saying don't have boundaries. Please nobody hear that. Somebody's like, well, just as you said. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting we don't have boundaries. However, when you begin to, at your core, fundamentally accept that human nature is volatile, it's selfish, it's self-seeking, it's interested usually only in itself, right? when we actually begin to accept that, we actually begin to find freedom to be able to love in the midst of that. This is similar here, a similar concept here that what Paul's saying in Romans. When we can begin to accept and understand that God works in ways that are invisible to us, we can find the freedom to finally let go and love fully. We can stop demanding that everything that happens in our life makes sense to us. This is freedom. That doesn't mean that you don't stop. I'm not suggesting that we all become nihilists, I not nihilist, I say that word right. I only know how to pronounce that from the big Lebowski. Um, right, like, so I'm not suggesting we get to the point of, like, nothing matters. But what I am suggesting is true freedom in knowing God and worshiping God starts with being able to say there are parts of ways that he works that are entirely invisible to me, but I know are also entirely good. And I can find some freedom to, like, release my expectations here. I can find some freedom to let go. I can find some rest. And stop demanding that everything that happened in my life, got explained to me. And trust and know that he's got me in his goodness. Because there are things that I can see. I can see the way that my kid smiles at me. I can see the way that this food tastes. I can see the way that this breeze hitting my, my bald head. I'm not, most of y'all aren't bald, but like the sun hitting me just right. Like these are all tangible evidence of the goodness of God, which means in these other moments when I can't see it, I can I can let go, I can find some freedom to trust and know that He's still working despite it being entirely unseen by me. This is I think what's so important and why the Nicene Creed starts with this: Creator God of all things, both visible and invisible. Why Paul says in Romans, "You're unfathomable. Who could be your counselor?" who could repay you. Your goodness is shown in such a way that there's nothing we can offer you back, which means that our, peer jo- our only job here is to receive it with open hands and to explore freedom and the goodness that you have for us as you forgive us, as you show us, as you lead us, as you redeem us, as you call us home to you. Let me pray for us as we close out with communion and a final worship song this morning. Well, Father, would you... Um, Would you be with us as we close this morning? Father, would you forgive me um, for the inadequacy of my words in explaining such a beautiful thing as your character and your nature? Such a majestic thing. Father, would you have real mercy on us as we strive to worship you and strive to understand you and strive to faithfully follow you? Much of what you do we can see and we can celebrate and worship and thank you and glorify you for but also there are many many ways that you are working in our lives that remain unseen by us invisible grace is all around us invisible goodness is all around us so father would you help our hearts to let go to find real freedom and comfort in knowing that you work in invisible ways as you do invisible ways and that your invisible ways that you work are no less evidence, no less tangible, no less accessible to us, and no less impactful over us as the visible ways are. Help us to trust both of these. Grow our hearts and our faith to worship you in the midst, whether we're in a season where it's visible or we're in a season where it's invisible. Would you help us to trust you and know you, Father? We need your help. Would you show us how to love one another? We pray all these things in your name. Amen.